Every Lord's Day we are comforted again with the promises of the Gospel as the Scriptures say, if we say that we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar and His truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's our comfort as we've now confessed our sins and asked for His forgiveness in Christ's name uh, that God assures us that we are also forgiven and worship Him with a clean and joyful uh, conscience. Let's now turn to the Word of God. Our scripture reading this morning comes, first of all, from Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs 10, we'll read that chapter. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, the heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense." The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. 
The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. So far from the book of Proverbs, let's also turn now to the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 11. If you're particularly sharp-eyed, you might notice uh, where Peter quotes from uh, that chapter in Proverbs. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human, desire, for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So far, the reading of God's Word. The text to which we want to pay particular attention this, uh, this morning is 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. Uh, let's read those verses again. There are only a few of them. 1 Peter 4, then beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we prepare to look at this text before us in detail, verses 7 through 11 of 1 Peter 4, it would be good for us to perhaps pause and, and uh, take, take account of, of where we are, uh, the ground that we've covered so far in Peter. We don't want to, as we look at the details in this text, we don't want to end up uh, missing the forest for the trees, forgetting where we are in the big picture of, of this letter 
Uh, we've been reminded often that Peter is writing this letter to scattered and persecuted Christians, to those Christians who had lost their homes uh, and their jobs, uh, sometimes their families, uh, and many of them even at risk of losing their very lives because of the hostility against the Christian faith, both by Jews and by, by Romans. And so a huge part of the the theme of this whole letter has been Peter's focus on suffering, uh, on teaching us to suffer well. Uh, Peter's encouragement and exhortation over and over and over to us has been, uh, if you're going to suffer, which you, you will to some extent, then suffer as children of God in an evil world. Uh, Follow the footsteps of Christ as you suffer, just as He suffered. Uh, Follow in His footsteps, returning good for evil, uh, especially when you are mistreated. Uh, And make sure, He's been reminding us, make sure that if if you do suffer, whatever happens, do not suffer as a result of doing evil. There's that kind of suffering that happens too, but that's not what Christ has called you to. And there is plenty of, of suffering there. Uh, evil begets its own suffering. Uh, but this is not the kind of suffering that, that Christians are called to endure. Uh, sexual immorality, drunkenness, orgies. Uh, he's mentioned a variety of the sins of that culture, which are really not that different from the sins of this culture. And those sins bring suffering, but that's not the kind of suffering we're called to. Uh, Instead, Peter's been saying, uh, suffer for doing the will of God. That's what we saw last time in in verses 1 through 6. Since Christ chose uh, to suffer, Christ came with a commitment and a willingness and preparedness to suffer for doing the will of God. We ourselves are to arm ourselves, he says, with the same commitment. Be prepared to do the same uh, and know that, that that suffering is coming, it's going to be hard, And God is calling you to suffer well. Uh, And so Peter's exhortation last time then uh, was particularly, leave behind that old way of life. As you you do suffer, leave behind the old way of life that the world is still engrossed in. He said, uh, the time is past, or or the time that is past is sufficient for for doing what the Gentiles do in all of these these varied sins. Uh, And you know that God is coming in judgment for those very sins. Uh, So even though the world might make fun of you, they might, they might malign you for, for rejecting that life. You do so nonetheless because you know the judgment of God is coming on the world for these very things. Nobody gets away with anything. Christ is coming in judgment and will judge not only the living but also the dead. You can spend an entire life in sin uh, and die at a, at a ripe old age. You're still going to stand before the judgment of Christ. Uh, So there's been a really strong negative exhortation in in verses 1 through 6. Don't go back to that old way of life. It's going to be tempting. But now now in uh, verses 7 through 11, uh, there's a very strong positive exhortation. Uh, Go out now to your new life. Be who you are in Christ. Uh, If you've suffered with Christ, having died to that old life... Uh, then that also means you are risen with Christ to a new life. And you want to spend the remainder of your years on earth committed to doing the will of God. 
That's what we want to think about then this morning. What does that look like to do the will of God in a culture, in a context that is under God's judgment? Uh, And Peter identifies four things in particular uh, in in this text. Number one, he says it means sobriety, sober-mindedness for the sake of your prayers. Number two, it means practicing fervent love for one another. Uh, Number three, it means showing hospitality. And number four, it means diligent service with the gifts that God has given you. Uh, Now, this isn't some sort of exhaustive list. You could probably add other things to this list that would fall under the will of God. Uh, but, But these were the things that at least Peter felt were forefront for the church during these years of suffering. And they certainly are relevant in our day for us as a church as well. And so we want to give our attention to each of these four things. Uh, So what then does it mean to live for the will of God in the last days? It means, number one, sobriety for the sake of your prayers. That's interesting. Maybe you you thought so too. It's interesting that Peter uh, connects the fact that we we are living in the last days, he connects that with sobriety. And we don't maybe often make that connection because many of us have seen examples of groups that claim to have discovered that Jesus is coming back uh, you know, next month or next year or something like that, and they've identified a date, uh, so they think. Uh, and, and these groups are anything but sober-minded. Uh, They're selling their properties, or they're standing out in the streets holding signs. Uh, They're they're obsessed with conspiracy theories, uh, weird and and wacky interpretations of Scripture. It's anything but sober-minded. But Peter says, because we're living in the last days, that's a cause and a reason for being sober-minded. You don't know exactly when Christ will return. Now, when he says the end of all things is at, is at hand, uh, he's not saying Christ is coming back tomorrow or even next year. Uh, the idea in Scripture, when Scripture speaks of the end being near, uh, is simply that we're living in the last days. We're living in the last age of, of history, the age where Christ is reigning, the gospel's going out, the nations are being gathered in, and we're headed towards the destination of judgment. That's the next chapter in, in history. And that's what it's, what's meant here by, by saying that the end is near. Uh, Peter makes this very clear in, in his next letter, in Second Peter, where he reminds the Christians that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. It's not about how long uh, it's going to take for Christ to return. It's about where are we in the history of God's dealings with the human race. And we're in the last, or, or the second last chapter, the last being judgment. Well, what that means for us then, uh, Peter says, is we are to be watchful and alert. We are to be sober-minded. Uh, we are to stay away from anything that might cloud our judgment or obscure our vision or dull our senses. Things like drunkenness, the things he's mentioned before. Things like orgies, out-of-control parties. uh, Things like anger and rage. He's dealt with those earlier as well. We're to stay away from whatever would cloud our judgment. uh, And instead, we are to be devoted to prayer. He says, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So how do you stay sharp? How do you stay sober-minded? By prayer. Uh, Prayer is how we stay in tune 
with God's will for our lives. Now, it's not here that Peter's encouraging the Christians to, to form like set-apart communities and little monasteries to spend all of their, their hours in prayer. Uh, no, the point is, by being devoted to prayer in the first place, you'll know the will of God for the rest of your life, for your work, for how you raise your family, for how you do dealings in, in the marketplace. Uh, you, you know how to do that by first making your first priority in prayer. Now, the only way to live by God's will day by day with a clear vision of what God's will is and, and then with a commitment to, to living it is through prayer. Now, here it would be good for us to think as well, when we think of things that might cloud our judgment, uh, it's not only things like drunkenness, lust, orgies, some of these other things that that Peter has mentioned, but even a, a regular daily routine without prayer leads to dulled senses. It leads to clouded minds. Uh, If our day is not shaped and guided by prayer, every single day uh, our senses become dulled. We become uh, spiritually sleepy. Uh, And many of us will be familiar with this. And so Peter's urging us to to set aside time for prayer because that's how you stay, stay sharp. And we might think about that in our own day. How are Christians today responding to the, the sudden disruption that, that's come into our lives through, through this virus and, and the shutdown and, and all of the uh, aftermath associated with that? Uh, just like the Christians then, many of us are experiencing great turmoil, great disruption. We're losing our jobs or, or we're facing a shortage of income later. Uh, many of us are afraid for our lives. Uh, many of us are afraid of, of our liberties being stripped away. And so it's a good time to ask, how well are we suffering? How well are we suffering and, and how is that suffering Uh, being shaped and guided by our prayers. Are we spending time in prayer? Are we waking up every day, starting our day with prayer, that God would direct our day and not our impulses, our emotions, our reactions to our circumstances? Uh, Are we being shaped by prayer? Uh, Times like these can bring out the best in us, uh, when when we've made sure that we've taken the time to speak to our Father and hear from Him, but they can also bring out the worst of us uh, when, when, uh, when we haven't been, been led by God and instead we're led by whatever impulses happen to take over us. And so you think of, uh, of the, Christian in, the Christians in Peter's day as well, uh, to whom Peter is writing. Many of them had faced the loss of their jobs, expulsion from their trade guilds because of their, their faith. Uh, some of them the loss of their homes, and, and many of them the loss of their lives or, or threats to, the, uh, to their lives. Well, you're not going to respond well to those unless you're first prepared in prayer. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about how the Christians that, that uh, were being written to there had, had even been able to rejoice while they were losing their homes. So their homes were being taken away from them. They were being driven out and they were rejoicing uh, because they were counted as worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Well, I don't think that just happened naturally. Uh, that kind of response is one that is prepared one that is ready, that has been waiting for that suffering and preparing for it through prayer. 
Uh, the historical records of, of the Christians in the first several centuries, in fact, during those, those centuries of particularly severe persecution, uh, the, the records record not only how the Christians suffered well, but how much time and effort they devoted to prayer. They knew this was a season of intense suffering, and they prepared for it well by spending time in prayer. Now, there are reformers as well during the Great Reformation of the 1500s. You think of uh, Guido de Bray uh, and the letters that he wrote to, to his wife and his children uh, that, that record his, his constancy in faith, but also how, how he tells uh, them of the time that he spent uh, in prayer, uh, preparing his heart to die well uh, before those who persecuted him. So before anything else, Peter teaches us to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers that we might be acquainted with the will of God for our lives. Uh, Secondly, Peter then urges us towards love. In fact, he urges us to love above everything else, he says. Above everything else, keep earnestly loving one another from the heart. Uh, Since, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, uh, we might want to stop and and think about what does that mean that love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, It certainly does not mean that that when we love others, we atone for our own sins. That's not what is meant here. Uh, In fact, the sins that are being covered here are the sins of the other, the sins of those whom we are are loving. Uh, That's the idea here, and Peter is actually quoting here, maybe you notice it, from Proverbs chapter 10, uh, where, where it says, "...hatred stirs up strife." But love covers all offenses. It's close enough. Uh, So we we assume that he's quoting here from from Proverbs. It's the same idea that that Paul teaches in in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love covers uh, the other's sins. Uh, We want to bear in mind here the big idea in this letter is when we're suffering for the will of God, uh, we want to make sure we're not suffering for doing evil. And one of the ways you you suffer for doing evil is when you refuse to cover the other person's sins. You refuse to let things go. You refuse uh, to love those who sin against you. And that that creates a cycle of of responding in retaliation and, and revenge. And so Peter has been urging us to see ourselves as children of God here in this world. And just as God covered our offenses, a multitude of our sins, uh, so we are called to imitate that love of Christ by by covering over the sins of others. Uh, Peter has been urging us uh, to do this uh, towards towards the world, bearing with those in the world even who, who persecute us. You think of what he said to citizens uh, responding to an unjust government or to slaves, Christian slaves responding to unjust Christian or unjust uh, non-Christian masters. Uh, but now he's also urging us to cover one another's sins within the church. Uh, at least within the church, the world ought to see uh, the power of Christian love and forgiveness. Now, of course, when we talk about covering sins in love, uh, that certainly does not mean that sins don't get dealt with. Uh, That's not his point at all. Uh, That too, uh, to, to deal with sin is love. But you deal with it in love, with the purpose of, of love. Love desires healing. 
Love desires the well-being of the sinner, uh, which includes freedom from, from the sin that has been ruling them. Uh, but we all know, don't we, how, how easy it is, uh, even within the church, to keep a record of wrongs, to remember those who sinned against you, to hold it against them, to hold on to grudges, to have a long list of, of the sufferings that we've endured at the hands of others and a very, very short list uh, of the things that we have done to wrong others. Well, here we want to imitate the, the heart of our God, our Father. You think of Psalm 130, uh, where, where the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should, should mark all our transgressions, if you should keep a record of our wrongs, O Lord, who could stand? Well, because our, our Father does not keep a record of our wrongs, but forgives them at the cross of Christ, we as Christians are to have the same forgiving attitude, covering over sins in love. Uh, it, uh, it's as, as Peter has said earlier in chapter 2, uh, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And so you want to show that mercy to one another. Uh, so Peter says, uh, then, thinking uh, here, especially of relationships within the church, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, that means be willing to suffer offenses, be willing to be restored, again, to be truly restored, not just, uh, you know, I've, I've forgiven them, but I don't really want to speak to them or spend time with them. It's, it's I want to be restored to them. I want to be at peace with them. Uh, and that's not ignoring sin uh, in any way. It's not enabling sin, but it's being committed to love, being committed to, to reconciliation in light of the cross by which we were reconciled first to God. That is a long road. It's a hard calling, the Christian's calling to, to be reconciled with others. And that entails a certain degree of suffering. Uh, but but this, is, this is life. As Christians, this is the new life to which we are risen with Christ, where we're not going to live in hatred. We're not going to live in grudges. We are going to live in mercy and love as Christ has been towards us. Now, one particular expression of that love is showing hospitality. That's the third point that Peter draws out here. Uh, in the culture of Peter's day, uh, there was a, a huge difference between the rich and the poor, much more so than there is today. There was much less of a, a middle class uh, than there is today. Uh, and, and what that meant is that it was typically the wealthier members of the church uh, that would host the worship services. At that time, especially during persecution, they didn't have church buildings like we do now. Uh, and so the wealthier members of the church would have bigger houses that could uh, afford um, having the church gather uh, in, in their homes. Uh, in that way, the, the wealthy members of the church were able to be a great blessing to the church community. They could host the worship services, provide food uh, as well for, for the Lord's Supper, uh, and, and, and in that way be a, a blessing to the church. But with that kind of hospitality would come, you can well imagine, a very real temptation to grumble. Uh, because, you know, while it might be gratifying uh, to, to uh, host these people uh, in, in their homes uh, and to be able to show generosity at the beginning of that relationship, uh, usually in the beginning of a relationship you enjoy the, the, uh, the giving, 
it becomes a very real temptation as things normalize, as, as time goes on, uh, that the receivers start treating it like an expectation, like they're entitled to that kind of generosity. Uh, and what happens then is that the givers will quickly start to grumble. And we do this. This, this happens in our relationships. As we give, uh, people get used to receiving. And then the givers start to, to grumble. Uh, they start to resent those who are receiving. Uh, and, 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 and they start to feel like the one who's receiving really ought to be doing more. They ought to be doing their fair share. They, they, you start to feel like you're being taken advantage of, and you start to grumble. Well, Peter applies this particularly then to the question of hospitality, uh, because that's where this issue tended to surface in the church of that day. You, you can easily imagine the scenario. Uh, the, the wealthier members of the church uh, host the church in their home, uh, and, and, and the church gathers joyfully, uh, appreciating that, that hospitality. Uh, but then as time goes on, you know these poor people, they, they don't wash their, their feet when they, get onto the, when they get into the living room. Uh, they don't help you wash the dishes afterwards, after you celebrated the Lord's Supper. Uh, you know, don't, don't they realize that how much work it takes to keep this place clean? Uh, those sorts of, of grumbling, uh, that sort of grumbling starts to happen. Uh, people start to wonder, you know, do these, these poor members really know what it means to, uh, to, to give? All they seem to know how to do is, uh, what to do is receive. Uh, and so as that relationship progresses, the generosity uh, starts to decrease, the grumbling starts to increase. What happens, and it happens in any relationship where, where there's giving on one side and receiving on the other. Uh, and when that happens, that we start grumbling, we have to stop and ask ourselves, uh, why was it that we started giving in the first place? If we're grumbling now, were we really giving with the right motive at first? Uh, it, when, when, when the gratitude diminishes and, and people are no longer thankful for what they're receiving and suddenly it's no longer a joy to give, were you giving with the right purpose in the beginning? Uh, were you giving to show the unconditional love and mercy of Christ? Or were you just giving for the sake of the gratitude that you expected from those who were receiving? And these are tough questions. Uh, and now Peter then applies this to the issue of hospitality, uh, where, where these same issues show up. Uh, the question uh, with, with hospitality is not, are you able to give or are you able to receive into your home? Uh, the question is, are you able to keep giving, to keep on receiving in your home and to do so without grumbling? Uh, even if your giving is being taken for granted, which it probably will be at some point, uh, even when you, you think the receivers are not doing their part uh, or appreciating how much you're giving, are you able to keep giving with joy, with gladness? Uh, I've seen it, unfortunately, oftentimes in, in mission situations as well, where supporting churches uh, who, are, who are supporting uh, uh, poorer churches in, in other countries uh, over time start to resent those churches that they are supporting. They start to feel like they're being taken advantage of. Uh, they start talking about a, a culture of entitlement uh, among those who are receiving. And there, there's often truth to that. There can be abuse. There can be those who, who, who have a culture of entitlement. I deserve the support that I'm getting. 
and, and are there times when helping hurts? Yeah, there are. But there are also times when helping over the long haul actually helps. When giving helps those who are receiving. But that takes a certain stamina, a certain willingness to give and give and give and keep on giving. Uh, To give wisely, but also to give generously, even if that's taken for granted. And and this is why Peter started with the issue of love. uh, The kind of love that keeps no record of wrongs. Are you prepared to bear offenses? Are you prepared to keep loving one another? And so he says, show hospitality, but do so without grumbling. Don't forget how much you've received by grace. Think of the hospitality that God the Father shows you, giving day after day, forgiving day after day, uh, over and over. Live then as children of your Father, since by grace that's who you are. And then finally, Peter speaks of, of service. As each has received a gift, he says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now again, as with the issue of hospitality, this is, this is an extension of that call to love. It's a practical uh, outworking of that, that love. And the idea here is that each of us have been given, uh, each of us have been given gifts for the purpose of serving each other. And we, and we should take a moment to, to stop and, and reflect on that point because it's, it's radically different from the way that we naturally think. See, the way we naturally think is each of us have been given gifts for the purpose of self-promotion. That's the way our flesh thinks. Uh, you think of how, how the Apostle Paul had to deal with this issue in the, in the church at Corinth where each had a gift from God, oftentimes spiritual gifts, things like speech, speaking in tongues or, or gifts of healings, but they were using those gifts for self-promotion. Well, Peter says uh, you, you, are, you are given a gift for the purpose of serving, to see yourself not as, as, as one who is exalted and, and worthy of being served, but one who is humbled and, and willing to serve as Christ is. Uh, so, so though we assume that our, our gifts are for our own promotion, Scripture teaches us to follow in the footsteps of Christ here. It's what Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, A couple more things about this. First of all, Peter speaks of God's varied grace. Uh, The Greek word uh, underlying that word varied is is literally multicolored. Multicolored grace uh, that God has shown to us. In in other words, we need to take the rainbow flag back. Uh, That flag belongs to us as the church because true diversity uh, is is not found in in pursuing lust, in pursuing uh, the the very lust that that the world celebrates. True diversity uh, is found in discovering that God has created us for glory. God has made us also very differently, and God has made us so to serve one another in love. And when you think about it, it's, it's truly amazing how, how multicolored, how varied are the gifts that God has, has given us. Uh, we, we share as human beings uh, a commonality that we are all made in God's image, but as individuals, we reflect that image in, in very different ways. 
Uh, and nothing shows, shows the beauty and the glory of all these different gifts than when they're being put to service in the service of love. They're being used to serve others. Uh, in that way, they are, they are doing what they were made for, which is to reflect God's glory and, and also to express God's love. Uh, secondly, then, Peter explains uh, that we are stewards of God's gifts. Uh, in other words, the gifts that we have from God, our, our various talents and abilities, uh, are not actually ours. They are God's on loan to us. They, they belong to God. They are entrusted to us. And, and that's true of whatever gifts we might have. It might be true of our, our wealth, going back to the issue there of, of hospitality. Uh, it's also true of, of the abilities that God has given us. You didn't create your gifts. You didn't give yourself those gifts. You received them. That's why they're called gifts. Uh, and you received them from the one who created you, who fills you also with his spirit, and has equipped you with these gifts for the service of love. Uh, you are made to serve. As a pastor, I have the very special privilege here of, of being able to witness, uh, I think the elders see this too, and the deacons as well, how, how all these gifts uh, can be used in, in beautiful service. Uh, you get to see that from this vantage point, how many Christians in this church are, are serving each other with their gifts, using their time, their energy, their resources, uh, their creative abilities to serve each other in, in love. It really is humbling and amazing to, to see this, and it's a reflection of, uh, of the wisdom of our Creator as He, as he gave us these various gifts. Uh, Peter here highlights two particular uh, categories of gifts, gifts of, of speaking and gifts of serving. Now, of course, both are gifts of service, but uh, we understand that as gifts of speaking and then uh, various other forms of, of service. Uh, some have proposed that maybe Peter's even speaking here of, he's alluding to the gifts of, uh, or the callings of elders and, and the callings of deacons, since elders serve primarily through their speaking, whether it's teaching or admonishing or uh, encouraging, uh, and then deacons serve primarily through, through uh, other gifts of, of service. But I don't think that is uh, what Peter has in mind. At least he's not explicit about it uh, being an allusion to elders and, and deacons. Uh, he's speaking here, uh, throughout this letter, he has been speaking to the whole Christian church. Uh, and, and so there's no indication now that he's suddenly only speaking here to office bearers. Uh, so Peter says those who speak, this would be all of us, should speak as if they're speaking the very words of God. Now, we should strive in our speech to speak the truth with the wisdom and the grace of God. Now, obviously, we're not going to achieve that goal in perfection here on, on this earth. But at the same time, we are indwelt by the Spirit uh, to, to be able to speak words of truth and grace that reflect the truth and grace of Christ. Even if it's not perfect, it is something the Spirit teaches us to do. Now, overall, uh, speaking, if we're called to speak the words of God, uh, one thing that will certainly mean for us is we should speak carefully. We should speak cautiously, uh, because we know that many of the thoughts uh, and, and emotions uh, and, and feelings that arise within us come not from the Spirit, but from the flesh. 
So we want to be cautious in our words. The scriptures often speak about the wisdom of cautious speech. Uh, Proverbs 10, verse 19, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Uh, Proverbs 13, verse 3, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 17, verse 27, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. One more, Proverbs 21, 23, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And so the Scriptures teach us that we are to be cautious. If we want to speak uh, where our words are reflecting the truth and grace of God, uh, that's going to mean speak carefully, speak cautiously. Don't be rash in your speech. It's what the Apostle James tells us as well, uh, that every person should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, it doesn't mean don't speak. It doesn't mean there doesn't ever come a time to speak. But it it means being careful uh, so that when we do speak, the words we say are the words that that bring truth and that bring life. That's what uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, when it it speaks of the the speech of the righteous, uh, if there's one thing that really comes out of it, it is uh, the speech of the righteous is life-giving. You see that theme over and over in in Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 15, verse 2, the the tongue of the wise commends knowledge. Or or 15, verse 7, uh, the lips of the wise spread knowledge. Proverbs 12, 18, the the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or Proverbs 15, 23, uh, how good is a word spoken in season. Uh, if our goal is that uh, when we speak, others are hearing the words of God, uh, then that means we are to be cautious in our speech and to aim for, for truth, to aim for grace, and to aim for life. Just like when the words of God are spoken, uh, they bring life, so ought to be also our speech. Now, naturally, I, as, as uh, your pastor, I particularly covet your prayers in, in this respect, as one who's called to speak the words of God publicly. Uh, few things uh, trouble a pastor more than the possibility that the words he's speaking are not words that reflect the truth and the grace of God. I know there is grace as well for pastors. We too are, are, are human beings and sinners full of, uh, uh, of, uh, full of uh, misguided thoughts, misguided perspectives. Uh, and so we too uh, need the prayers of, of God's people. That might be why the Apostle James says that those who teach incur a stricter judgment, because they know what they're saying. So are they living by it? Uh, and they too run the risk of, of causing greater damage by, by not speaking words of truth and life. Uh, so whoever speaks should speak the, as, as if speaking the oracles of God. Whoever serves, Peter said, says, should serve by the strength that God supplies. Uh, In other words, let your serving, whatever service that might be, uh, be a way of pointing to God's strength and not to yours. It can be very easy when we're we're serving, and especially if we're tired from from that service, uh, that that we start to call attention to our own strength. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how I'm sacrificing. Look at the work that I uh, pour out for, for, for others. 
this, this often happens particularly because, uh, perhaps you've heard it, that oftentimes in a church, 20% of the people do 80% of, of the serving. And that, that can oftentimes be, be true. Uh, and, and then you can start to resent those who aren't uh, pulling their, their fair share. Well, if I understand Peter correctly, what he's saying here is those who who serve should should do so in the strength that God supplies, which means resting in the strength that God gives you so that you can do your works of service with gladness and joy, not looking over your shoulder at how others are serving or not serving, but resting in whatever strength God gives you to do your service. The moment we begin to compare ourselves to others, uh, we quickly begin to think, well, look at how much I'm doing and look at how much they're not doing. Uh, We start to think more about how how maybe I ought to be taking better care of myself uh, and not others. That's what happens when you're serving, but not in the strength that God supplies. When you're serving in God's strength, you're doing so with gladness and joy, without resentment towards anyone who might be doing differently. It is far better to serve in God's strength uh, and then also to rest in the moments that God gives you and to do both of those without any resentment or bitterness towards others. Uh, And when we do that, uh, then what others get to see in us is not self-promotion or self-righteousness that that highlights our own service, but rather God who strengthens us, who strengthens us physically, who strengthens us spiritually for that service uh, so that we can do so out of love as God does and not out of that self-promotion. And the result of that kind of service is God gets the glory for strengthening you as, as he has. Uh, and that's where really all of this lands. Uh, those who speak or those who serve are doing so so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's saying this is how God has been towards us and so this is how we want to be towards others so that they can see the grace and mercy of God. That's really what it's all about. The Christian hope in these last days, in a culture that's under God's judgment, is that we would be a small light in this world. A light that others can see, where seeing, not just seeing us, but seeing through us, they can see the glory of God. They can see the grace, the mercy, the truth, the righteousness, the holiness of God. Uh, that God who has showered us with grace upon grace, uh, that he would receive the honor he deserves. That ought to be our desire for our own lives uh, in in these last days. Uh, And he equips us for that uh, by his spirit. Uh, So let's do that in love. Amen.